All right, if you want to grab a seat. And as you get yourself settled in, uh, you should have we got a bulletin when you came in. You might have noticed on the front there that we're going to take a, a one-week little break here from Hebrews uh, in order to do something different. And uh, in 2018, this same weekend, the last week of 2000, last Sunday in 2018, we took a pause so that I could do just a little sharing of uh, where I was in life and uh, some of what the Lord was doing in my own heart and in my own mind and in Melody and I's marriage. And um, that what that ended up doing was that it ended up creating some space within the life of our church for uh, what ended up being kind of a larger discussion with individuals or groups of people about mental health. Um, that was a significant part of my 2018 uh, process has been in 2019, and that ended up being a wonderful thing, something that, from a pastoral sense, is a conversation that needs to be taking place within the larger C church uh, in America. We can sometimes shy away from that conversation. So in 2018, um, this last weekend of the year, I did some sharing personally, and that led us into uh, a season of being able to openly have some conversations with people in our congregation, which was wonderful. Um, I want to do a similar thing here, although on a different topic, and that's just have a discussion pastorally, uh, something that I think is critically important to the church, not just our church, but the church in America, something that the Lord has really uh, been teaching Melody and myself over the last year, over the last 15 months, really. And uh, it has to do with the topic of hurry and uh, rush, or as our kind of 2019 society would maybe phrase it, it has to do with this constant drive of hustle and kind of grind that just permeates our culture. And the antidote to that is what I want to talk about, which is rest, Sabbath, slowness, withdrawal. Um, Dallas Willard says that the great enemy of spiritual life in our day is hurry. Uh, another way that I've heard it vocalized is that to live a life of hurry is to do violence to your soul. Um, so I want to talk about that. Exodus 20 is where we're going to be. If you're familiar with your Bible, you'll, you'll recognize Exodus 20 as being the chapter where the Ten Commandments are. Uh, verses 8 to 11 are the commandment about the Sabbath. And so I want to read that, and then we'll pray and kind of move forward in our conversation. So here is what Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11 say. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates, for the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Let's pray. Uh, God, I pray for this congregation, for followers of Christ the world over, uh, that we would learn to see this command uh, as a loving, gracious blessing. I pray that we would learn to cherish 
Sabbath, slowness, that we would learn to cherish resting in your presence, enjoying you deeply without having to do anything. God, that we would really learn what it means uh, to rest in you because Jesus has done all of our work. God, I pray that over the course of the next 35 minutes or so, God, that you would open our hearts and our eyes to the reality of the world that exists around us and that we often just go along with. God, I pray that you would help us to see the problem with that. I pray that you would give us a clear picture of the rhythm that you've built into your creation. And I pray that you would uh, give us, help us to see some practical things that we can grab onto that could make significant life changes for us. Uh, significant changes in the way it is that we relate to you and we live in relationship with you, how it is that we follow you and love you and by extension then love others in the world around us. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to that. Would your spirit be here? Take the truth of your scripture and press it deeply into our hearts in such a way that it transforms who we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may or may not be totally aware of it. But simply by being a person in America in 2019, the odds are very high that you are on just sort of the general societal crazy train in terms of your calendar. That more often than not, it's chaos that marks your days rather than calm. That chaos, that rush is hindering your relationship with God. It's wearying your soul. It may very well be crushing your physical and mental health. It's certainly harming your spiritual health. And it's not what God intended. In any segment or section of our life, there's a fundamental truth about change. And that truth is that you'll never make any significant change in your life until you realize that there's a problem and that the solution to that problem is better than your current reality. You'll never change otherwise unless you realize there's a problem and you realize that the solution to that problem is better than your current reality. This morning, what I want to do is try to define a problem. I want to just paint reality as it exists for us today. Odds are there are some in here who are like fish in water. That was me just if you went back 15, 18 months ago. I had no idea that this problem existed all around me and that I just participated in it fully and even joyfully and kind of celebrated it at times. It had to be spelled out for me in order for me to see it. After defining the problem, I want to talk about the biblical picture and then I want to spend a significant amount of time offering you some practical advice for how you could solve the problem in your own life. What is the problem? The problem is that we have simply forgotten how to rest. I say that not as, maybe not every single individual in here, but as a general culture in society, we just don't really know how to rest. It's almost as though the push toward hustle and hurry and cramming more into 24 hours every day has rewired us as a collective group of people to view hurry as normal and rest as almost inherently bad, lazy, like you're not maximizing your life or something. Let me put this in three sort of 
lenses for us to look at. First of all, we tend to overwork. 86% of American men work more than 45 hours. Two-thirds of American women in the workforce work over 45 hours. You might say to yourself, I don't know, 45 hours a week doesn't seem that bad. Studies vary, but the average American works somewhere between 44 and 47 hours a week, which is about 8.8 or 9.4 hours a day. 10% of Americans work more than 60 hours a week. Let me put that in a global context. The average Japanese worker compared to the average American worker works 137 hours less over the course of a year. That's the equivalent of three and a half working weeks. Let's move to a different country. The average American worker works 260 more hours in a year than the average worker in England. That's six and a half weeks worth of work. The average American worker works 499 more hours over the course of a year than a worker in France. That's 12 weeks worth of work time. And it's not as though we're working more because we're somehow trying to keep up in a productivity sense. There's a metric that uh, those who study labor use in order to gauge the productivity of any worker in the course of one hour. That metric is labeled the BLS. The average American worker, according to the BLS, is 400% more productive than they were in 1950. To put that into context, that would mean that the average American worker today would only need to work 10 hours in a week in order to be just as productive as the average American worker was in 1950. Part of that increase in productivity is due to technology. None of those numbers include the amount of time that Americans spend working from home, answering emails in the evening taking that quick work phone call after dinner. The average American worker only uses 54% of their vacation time. A lot of American corporations now have gone to not offering standard amounts of vacation time, but saying you can take as much vacation if you want. Do you know why they do that? You will take less. It's not you can take as much vacation time as you want, as a generous thing of saying, take all the time off that you need, it's you can take as much vacation time as you want and we'll convince you that you don't need very much. I could highlight a number of other factors related to this, all which conspire us to work longer, harder, and more frequently. But the point is this, by almost any metric that you use, America is one of the most overworked countries in the world. And we hide the dangers of that beneath this veil of celebration idolizing the kind of rags-to-riches story of American folklore. Sure, that's a wonderful narrative, but what if those riches come at the expense of your soul? Jesus had something to say about that directly, didn't he? For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? We're overworked. We're addicted to technology. Historians kind of group together the progress of human technology really in three major shifts that have taken place. 1440, the printing press was invented. In, 17, in the 1700s in Europe, the factory system was introduced. In 1879, the light bulb was introduced, and now we didn't have to stop working when it got dark. There's a fourth that most are beginning to recognize, and it happened in 2007. 
was the invention of the smartphone. Nothing has changed the pace of life, work, and the human soul more than the invention of the little device that's likely in your pocket or has the Bible open right now. The average American iPhone user touches their phone over 2,600 times a day. You just touch it. It's like, what's it doing? I just, I just want to hang out with it. 2,600 times a day. Depending on the study you read, smartphone users spend something like three and a half to five hours a day staring at their phone screen. The internet is in your hand at all times. Work is in your hand at all times. Social contact is in your hands at all times. The 24-hour news cycle is in your hand at all times. And studies suggest that most Americans spend somewhere around 11 hours a day consuming content of some sort, whether that be on their phone, on a tablet, on the radio, or on TV. 11 hours a day. We've been trained to continually stuff ourselves with content and activity and productivity because what will happen if we miss out? What if news breaks and we're seven minutes late knowing that it happened? Well, the world might fall apart. The result is that our brain is always hurrying from one thing to the next, even if our body isn't. You might do a, a good job of not overworking. You might be someone who doesn't work for whatever reason. And so your body doesn't feel like it's shifting from thing to thing to thing to thing all the time, but your brain is. In fact, the most recent study that was conducted on the uh, attention span of the average American adult put it at eight seconds. That's on par with a goldfish. <laughs> That's an adult. The average American adult has an attention span of somewhere around eight seconds. John Ortberg says it this way, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith, it's that we will become so distracted and so rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We'll just skim our lives instead of actually living them. We tend to overwork, we're addicted to technology, and last, we're sleep deprived. 40% of Americans get less than seven hours of sleep every night. 30% get less than six hours of sleep. The average American in 2018 slept 6.8 hours a night. And before you kind of pound your chest with pride about how little sleep you need, understand that the results of that are devastating. In 2014, the CDC declared sleep deprivation a United States national health crisis. Lack of sleep studies have shown, contributes to increased likelihood of depression, anxiety, attention deficit disorder, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, increased risks of cancer, and an increased chance of Alzheimer's. Why those drastic effects? Because depriving ourselves of rest is contrary to the very manner in which God created us to live. It goes against the rhythm that he cooked in to the created order that we live within. I'm willing to go so far as to say that hurry, the push for more productivity, that rush is a literal tactic of the literal devil to draw us away from the Lord. If you're someone who attends LCF regularly, uh, you'll know that I'm careful with those words. I don't stand up here regularly and decry things as you know, tasks or schemes of the devil that he's put to distract us. But I really do believe that this is one. Corey Tenboom says, if Satan can't make you sin, he'll just make you busy. 
the result, your soul is tired. Not just your brain, not just your body. Your soul is tired. Let me put it to you in the form of a question. The last 10 times you and your family skipped church, I don't mean missed church, like you were out of town or you were visiting family. The last 10 times you skipped church, why? I'm willing to bet that you were overscheduled or that you were overtired because the week had run you ragged and you decided when the alarm went off on Sunday morning that you just needed the chance to rest. Our culture of unrelenting busyness needs an answer, but you'll never make a change until you realize there's a problem and that the solution to that problem is better than your current reality. And so my second question for you would be, does your life look like that? Does it just feel like you're always in a hurry? I said this in a sermon a couple months ago, but does it just feel like you're 10 minutes behind schedule all the time? We don't have to look any further than the Bible to find the answer. What I'm going to do here is I'm just going to read a series of verses. I'm not going to offer a ton of commentary. They speak for themselves. You can jot these down and go back and look at them later. They're not going to appear on the screen. But the Old Testament and the New Testament display very clearly that there's a rhythm to the way that God created the world. It starts right at the beginning, Genesis 1-5. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was an evening and there was a morning, one day. Very simple. There's night and day. Genesis 1-14. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons, for days, and for years. It's not just that there's a rhythm to 24-hour cycles. It's that there is a larger rhythm. It plays out over the course of years. There are seasons, winter, spring, summer, fall. Years come and go. Genesis 8:22. this is after the flood. God says, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. That rhythm isn't changing. There's a time to plant. There's a time to harvest. We're not an agrarian society, but the year calendar dictates what that lifestyle looks like. There's a specific time you plant, a specific time you harvest, and then winter comes around and the land rests. We see that in the Midwest. Everything dies in the winter, and then it springs back to life in the spring. Beautiful, but it has to have that period of rest. It needs it. The command in Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. You're to labor for six days, do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath day. That's the longest command of the Ten Commandments. It's the only one that comes with an, ext- an extended reason for why it's there. God rested, and so you should too. In Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 to 17, there's this list of consequences for disobeying the Sabbath. Do you know what the consequence is? Death, stated twice. A Jewish individual who broke the Sabbath, what was the consequence? Death. That seems incredibly extreme to us. It also tags in in Exodus 31, again, the reason that we would take the Sabbath. Why? On the seventh day, God rested and was refreshed. That consequence for breaking the Sabbath seems incredibly, incredibly harsh to us. But think a little bit. What was the consequence for all sin? Death. Adam and Eve. 
eat from the tree, what was going to happen? Surely you will die. The consequence seems very extreme, and yet it's just the consequence for sin in general. We live in a broken world, and death is a reality. Psalm 104, 19, verses 19 to 23. He made the moon to mark the festivals, the sun to know when to set. You bring darkness, and it becomes light when the forest animals stir. The young lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises. They go back and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. Jeremiah 8, verse 7. Even storks in the sky know their seasons. Turtle doves, swallows, and cranes are aware of their migration. Creation knows this rhythm, this cycle. Animals know it, and they obey it. The point is this. God hardwired a rhythm of rest into his creation. It was modeled by himself after his creating work concluded. It includes time to work and time to rest, and nature obeys it. There's only one creature in all of the world who does not obey it, and that's humanity. We disobey it to our own peril. And then Jesus came, and he offers this perfected picture of what humanity ought to look like. And it shouldn't be a surprise that one of the things that he offered a perfect picture of is what does it look like to live within that rhythm? Let me show that to you. Luke 2, verse 41. Every year, his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. So just in case we're tempted to believe that Jesus stepped out of heaven and this rhythm of creation was just hardwired into him, it's important to see that it was modeled to him by his parents. They obeyed the calendar of the year. But not just that yearly calendar. He honors the regular rhythm and tradition of the Jewish Sabbath. We know that he had to have because he never sinned. We don't, when we think of Jesus and his sinlessness, we don't typically think, oh, he must have been a faithful Sabbath observer. But he had to have been because if he wasn't, he would have been guilty of sin. And so what does Luke 4.16 say? He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He's been doing ministry in Galilee to the praise of masses of people. He's begun his healing ministry. And what does he do? He slips away to Nazareth to enjoy his Sabbath. Shortly after that, he's healing in Capernaum, casting out demons. And the sick are beginning to come from all over in order to see him, to be touched by him, or just to touch him. And the sun sets, and presumably he sleeps overnight. And when he wakes up the next morning, Luke 4.42 says, When it was day, he went out and made his way to a deserted place. And the crowds were searching for him. He calls his first disciples. We're told that he heals a man with leprosy. He refuses to get sucked into the craziness of what his ministry could create around him. Luke 5, verses 15 to 16. But the news about him spread even more, and large crowds would come, gather, or come together to hear him and be healed of their sickness. Yet, he often withdrew to deserted places to pray. He has a confrontation with some Pharisees over the purpose of the Sabbath, and he gives his famous line that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then right in the middle of arguing with the Pharisees, Luke 6, 12, during those days, he went out to the mountains to pray. Just leaves it behind. He commissions the 12 to go out and do ministry. They come back with reports of all that they had seen the power of the Holy Spirit do through them. And Luke 9, verse 10 says, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus all that he had done. Imagine the excitement that they're feeling in that moment. All the stuff they had seen the Holy Spirit do through them, the healing, the casting out of demons, the miracles that they had witnessed. And then it says, Jesus took them and withdrew privately to pray. 
Yeah, your ministry was fantastic. Let's go rest. As a side note, a large crowd follows, and Jesus tells the apostles to send the crowd away. That's how important the rest was. The disciples tell him there's not food for these people out here in the wilderness. And so his compassion compels him to feed those people, all 5,000 of them. The very next scene, they're alone, and Jesus is praying. Apparently, the disciples were watching. He's modeling this rhythm of retreat, of withdrawal, of stopping. And they ask Jesus to teach them how to pray, and he does. That happens in Luke 11. Toward the end of his ministry, we see that that practice hasn't changed in his life. Luke 21, verse 37. During the day, he was teaching in the temple, but in the night, he would go out and spend the night alone on what is called the Mount of Olives. Luke 22, verse 39. Right before Jesus is arrested, he went out and made his way, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. That doesn't include the fact that one time during a massive storm, Jesus is doing what at the front of the boat? Sleeping. I'm just, you guys handle it. I'm going to rest. Three really brief observations. These should pretty much stand out on their own. Jesus naturally observes the rhythm that God built into the world. He observes it on a yearly basis with that festival schedule. He observes it on a weekly basis by observing the Sabbath. And he observes it on a daily basis by taking time to withdraw and to rest. And it's that rest that then fuels his ministry. He's intentionally withdrawing so that he can engage very purposefully. We tend to operate the other way. Engage, 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 engage until we can hardly stand it anymore and then just kind of slink away to withdraw for a couple of hours and feel guilty about it as if we're wronging someone for taking a few moments to rest. It should be our rest that fuels our work, not our work that causes us to limp in to rest. And the third thing, Jesus was just never in a hurry. Go back and read the gospel sometime. He's just moving along at his own pace and he does not give a rip at what speed anyone else thinks that he should be moving. Walter Adams, the man who discipled C.S. Lewis, used to remind C.S. Lewis frequently that to walk with Jesus is to walk a slow, unhurried pace. You'll never make a change until you realize that there's a problem. And that the answer to that problem is better than the reality that you're currently experiencing. And so, here's the question. Does your life look more like the hurried life of our typical American society? Or does your life look more like Jesus' life? Does your life skate through the natural rhythm of our created order? Or does it obey that that created order? I want to give you... Uh, three practices, the first one is most important, that could totally change this in your life in 2020. Not only could it totally change that pace, it could totally change your mental health, your physical health, it will absolutely change your spiritual health, it could change the trajectory of the life of your children. That practice is Sabbath. That is the pillar. That's why it's commanded in the Ten Commandments. It's a good and a gracious gift. You start to get Sabbath right, and I can promise you that the rest will fall into place. That was a bold statement when it was made to Melody and me 16 months ago at Potter's Inn, when I was on the verge of a breakdown, just a complete mental, emotional breakdown. And they said, you start to get the Sabbath right, to enjoy 
God in the context of rest and everything else will fall into place. I thought they were crazy. It's been a 16-month process for Melody and I to figure out what this looks like, but it has absolutely proved itself to be true. And I just want to share some of that with you. The word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shavat. That word means to stop, to cease, to desist, to stand down, to quit. It appears for the first time in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. You know who else gets to rest on that day? Adam. Right after being created. In fact, Adam had just received the instructions or the command to what he was supposed to do. Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And then God says, we'll start that on day eight. Let's take a rest. The word Sabbath, or Shabbat, comes from that Hebrew word, Shabbat, to stop, to cease. Adam is going to work, but he's going to work from his rest. That's the key. Sabbath ought to be what fuels our work. Our work does not create our Sabbath. Sabbath creates our ability to work in a meaningful way. You might be someone who's retired and you say, I don't work at all anymore. That's fine. You don't have to work in order to need a Sabbath. You need a Sabbath regardless. You might be someone who's a stay-at-home parent and you say, I don't have a job. So why would I need another day to continue to not have a job? If you're a stay-at-home parent, you should laugh at that statement. You absolutely need a day to rest, to just be with the Lord. And the day is holy. Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. That means it's other, it's different, it's set apart. It looks radically other than what the other six days look like. Before the command is even given in Exodus chapter 20 and the details of it are spelled out in the rest of the Levitical law, there's the model. You work for six days and then there's this day that's other, set apart. It's different. In the Exodus command, we're told to remember the Sabbath day. That's not a passive act of thinking about something from the past. The Hebrew verb actually means to set your mind on something present. We are to take a day, set it apart, have it look different than the other six days, and then set our minds on the present act of resting because God is the creator. It is a command. Exodus 31 spells out the consequences of that command. But praise the Lord, Jesus fulfilled that perfectly in our place. And so we can rest in him. And just like he paid the price for all of our other sins, he pays the price for our Sabbath breaking. But it means that now we get to celebrate Sabbath, the Lord's Day, not in order to win favor from God or to avoid punishment from God, but because doing it reminds us that ultimately our salvation hangs not on our doing, but on our resting in the work of Jesus. Sabbath is not the icing a Christian puts on the top of their spiritual cake if they have time. Sabbath ought to be one of the foundations they build their spiritual life upon. Why? Because if our hearts are to find their supreme joy in God, then the day we set apart to enjoy Him supremely should be a huge priority to us. We talk about being gospel-centered. It means that we want to love and cherish Jesus. We want to love and cherish the gospel above all things. And if I'm 
saying or scripture is saying, you can have one day where that's all you need to do. You don't have to worry about anything else. Why would we not cherish that day above everything else? How do you set this up? Here are some practical tips. I'm gonna give you five of them. The first one is frame it correctly. Frame it correctly. The way that Melody and I do this is that we ask each other a simple question. What would give you life today? What would just make you feel energized? Make you feel rested? Another way that I've heard people ask that question is what would allow you to simply rest in the goodness of God today? You could frame it by saying, what would help you worship God today? And let's put aside the notion of worship as being music. Now, you might Sabbath on Sundays, and so part of your experience there would be coming to corporate worship, and part of that would be singing. But to worship is where you allow your soul to both experience and express the goodness and the glory and the grace and the mercy of of God. That's what worship is. You allow your soul to experience that. You allow your soul to express that. What would help you worship? There's a book by John Mark Comer called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's a fantastic book. His family asks the question this way. What would give you throbbing joy today? Then they answer that question. You've got to frame it. Now, I like to work. It's part of my personality. I could be a workaholic, not because I feel like the demands of the job are such that I need to work around the clock, but I could just work a lot because I like to work. I like to feel productive. I like to achieve things. I like to accomplish things. But the thing that gives me life in framing that on a Sabbath can't be work email. Put the parameters around it. Frame it. What's off limits on that day? Exclude those and then answer the question, what would help you worship? What would help you have, feel like you've got life? What would help you rest in the presence of God? Second, schedule it. And I mean, put it on the calendar. Jewish uh, tradition held that you celebrated, you began the Sabbath when there were three stars visible in the sky in the evening on Friday night. So as the sun went down and dust came and you could see three stars, that was the time to begin the Sabbath. And literally, if you were out in the field plowing rows, getting ready for seed time, and there were three stars visible, you just left the plow out in the field. We'll pick it back up when the Sabbath is over. It'll still be there. Society's changed a little bit. Don't leave your plow out there. It might not still be there. Schedule it. Go sunset to sunset. There's a a reason for that. Very practical, helpful one. If you decide that you're going to start your Sabbath on, let's just say, Saturday morning, and you're going to go till Sunday morning, you're going to kind of culminate your Sabbath at church, and that'll be the end of it. Here's what'll happen on Saturday morning. You'll wake up and you'll say to yourself, I need to do these three things really quickly before we start to Sabbath. Pretty soon it'll be noon, and you'll say to yourself, I have one more left, and half of your Sabbath will be gone. The beauty of starting in the evening, so for Melody and I, we start at dinner time on Friday night. We go through dinner time on Saturday. Now, let me be realistic. Sometimes from like 4.30 when we both are home from work until like 6 or 6.30 when we have dinner is a flurry of activity because there's some stuff we need to situate before Sabbath starts. But that flurry of activity is, I'm not kidding, joyful and excited because we are like moments away from starting Sabbath and we can't wait. And so sometimes, you know what, it's time to have dinner. We're not going to keep doing this. We're just going to leave the dishes there. And part of what we love to do on Sabbath oftentimes is have people over to our house. And yep, stack of dirty dishes in the sink. 
We'll wash them on Sunday. It's okay to have people over to your house and to tip them off to the fact that you live there. Like you exist in that space. It's okay. (laughs) And we just let it be. But you've got to schedule it. And then you've got to guard it. You'll have to say no. The world is not just going to make it really easy for you to have your Sabbath. You'll have to say no, but here's the deal. You'll be saying no oftentimes to good things so that you can enjoy something better. That is a joyful no. No, I will not do that thing. This is so much better. I want to enjoy it. And so you'll have to turn down invitations to things. You'll have to guard it in the sense that sometimes on the day that you would normally Sabbath, something is going to come up that you simply cannot avoid. I perform a number of weddings. They typically involve a Friday night rehearsal and a Saturday evening ceremony. It's not honoring that rhythm of Sabbath to say, you know what, I'll just go to the rehearsal, then I'll go to the ceremony, and I'll kind of squeeze some Sabbath into the middle. No, that requires, we're going to shift the Sabbath to a different day. We're not just going to skip it. We're going to move that to a different time. You'll have to guard it. And then the fun part is you savor it. Cherish that time. What's the thing that's going to give you joy or give you life or help you experience the goodness of God? What's the thing that's going to allow you to worship and then you invest yourself fully? You don't think about the to-do list that's waiting for you tomorrow. You don't worry about the things that didn't quite get done beforehand. You're just enjoying the presence of God. And so for you, if that means you want to get outside in nature, uh, Kurt Huber really loves watching birds. If that means he wants to go drive to his favorite bird place and just look at birds for a couple of hours and worship God, the bird creator, then by all means, go and worship the bird creator. Yes. (laughs) If that means that you want to have people over to your house and just be with friends, then by all means, do that. If it means you want to curl up with a good book, curl up with a good book. If it means you need to take a nap, take a nap. If you need to sleep in, sleep in. Do things as a family. Do some things separately. Enjoy that. Savor it. But here's the key. You're not savoring the rest. You're savoring the giver of rest. As soon as you turn it into being about the rest, you'll end up disappointed with the Sabbath that didn't meet your rest expectations. You make it about the giver though, and I promise you'll never walk away disappointed. You'll get to like Tuesday or Wednesday and you'll be savoring. I mean, you just won't be able to wait for how many more days until Sabbath? When do we get to Sabbath? How long until we can rest? Last, launch from it. Sabbath is the day that sends us into the rest of our week, not the day that allows us to escape from the rest of the week. It's not something we limp into. It's something we long for and then we launch from. Gives you the energy to work hard. If you start getting your once a week Sabbath right, you'll start looking for moments of Shavat on a regular basis, moments to stop, to slow down. John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, calls this slowing or slowness. You'll crave moments of rest throughout the day. You'll start looking for chances to come to Jesus with all your weariness and all your tiredness and receive rest for your soul. In that book, John Mark Comer gives 20 tips for slowing yourself down. I want to give you nine of them this morning. Drive the speed limit. You feel yourself in a hurry? Say, you know what? For the next week, I'm driving the speed limit. And I don't mean the speed limit is 65 so I can go 70. I mean the speed limit is 65 
and I'm going 65. You don't need to go 62. That frustrates people. But go 65. And if that's a challenge for you, get in the slow lane. You get yourself behind really big semi or like an Oldsmobile and just, just drive in the slow lane. Let yourself slow down. Just exist there. It's okay. On average, your car drives are probably like 30 minutes. You speed five miles over the speed limit for 30 minutes, you're only saving yourself a couple minutes. Just slow down. Arrive early to your next appointment. Maybe you've got a first of the year doctor's appointment to do kind of your yearly checkup. It's scheduled for 1230. Show up at 1220, no phone. Get yourself checked in. Sit down in the waiting area of that doctor's office and just be. Watch people. Reflect on something. Don't even pick up and read the magazines. Those are gross anyway. Sick people touch those. (laughs) Just be. No phone. Get in the longest line at the grocery store. Heard somebody groan. (laughs) Get in the longest line at the grocery store and stand there and don't look at your phone. And then when you get up to the front, treat the teenage person or the worker there like a human being. Ask them how they're doing. How's their day? Have a conversation. Just slow down. Parent your phone. And by that, I mean make it dumber. Turn off the notifications. If you've got an iPhone, I'm sure it's this way on Samsung, Android phones, you can put it on a do not disturb mode. So that it doesn't even buzz. When you're ready to check it, you can check it, and all of your texts or phone calls will be there. Just make it dumber. Put it to bed at night. Pick a time. You know what? We put the kids down to go to sleep at 8 or 8.30, and at that point, we're just putting our phones to bed, too. And you and your spouse, just be together. Have conversation. Read a book. Watch a show together, if that's what you want to do. No phone. End your screen time. Look, I'll be totally transparent. That phone aspect is the hardest part of this for me. Over 10 years of uh, our marriage here, the last decade that we've been together, Melody and I have probably had more difficult confrontations over my engagement with my phone than we have over anything else, where she's looking at me and saying, you need to change something. It has to give. You need to stop. And in fact, we just recently had one a couple months ago. And I said, okay, I need you to help me. Like, let's just make some boundaries. And so we set a hard and fast screen limit time for every single day. And when my phone gets to that point, all the apps just shut off. The phone function still works and I can still get text messages and everything else is just off. We put our phones to bed at nine o'clock. They're just done. We bought analog alarm clocks so that at night we can put our cell phones into the drawers on our nightstands and not see them and not have them be the first thing we grab when the alarm goes off in the morning. Parent your phone. Slow your brain down. Single task. Stop deluding yourself by thinking that you're the world's best multitasker. You're not. You're just really good at switching back and forth between tasks because your attention span is about eight seconds long. Single task. Focus in on one thing. I saw someone, a pastor on social media the other day, who said that his goal in 2020 for his children was to normalize boredom. 
Just teach them to think being bored is just a normal part of life. Do one thing. Walk slowly. You're going to go get your kids from Kids Point here in a little bit. You're going to walk to the car. Just make it real leisurely. What's the hurry? Where are you, where are you going? And if you've got to get there in such a hurry, maybe you need to rethink how you're scheduling on Sundays. Journal, which is just a spiritual practice, a spiritual discipline that will allow you to actually think about the things that you're thinking while you're reading scripture or while you're praying. It just force you to slow down. Last, if your work allows it, I realize not all jobs do, take long vacations. We like to take long weekends. Oh, we're just going to slip away real quick to Colorado, leave Thursday night, come back Sunday evening, go, 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 go the whole time we're there, and we arrive back on Monday morning in the office, and the vacation made us more tired than we were when we left. If your work allows it, take long vacations. Actually let yourself shut down and rest. Not coincidentally in any way, what have we done around here as a church this year? We slowed down the pace of our Sunday mornings. That conversation about our service times and hurrying through aspects of our worship together was something that had been happening around this church for like a decade. And after settling into a Sabbath routine and starting to long for ways that my life could slow down on a daily basis, I just couldn't take the hurry anymore. It ought to feel like an absolute tragedy to rush through our worship of the Lord together. And so we made a decision. We're going to slow down. We're going to put some more space in here. Give our people time to interact with each other. Not be staring at the clock when I'm up here, when Brian's up here, whoever is teaching. What's the point of all this? Small moments of peace every day. Little chances to enjoy the Creator. A forced reminder that you're not the one that's propelling your life forward an opportunity to practice slowing down so that the wind, when the world forces it upon you, you've got that 12.30 doctor's appointment and you show up and they can't see you till 12.50 and you sit there tapping your foot and hammering away at emails and sending angry texts to your spouse about how annoyed you are that the doctor's office is running a little bit behind schedule because heaven forbid sick people are sick, right? You're already slowed down. It's just, this is just life. I can sit. I can just enjoy being a human being not a human doing. I can enjoy just existing and not just living on my calendar or whatever the case might be. It's an opportunity to let your soul breathe. And then finally, silence and solitude. You get Sabbath right. You start longing for moments of slowness in your daily life. You're also going to start craving silence. Maybe one of the most common statements we hear as a pastoral staff when we interact with uh, people in our congregation or just followers of Christ in general is that they say, I don't know how to hear from God. I don't ever feel like I hear from the Lord. I ask two questions in response always. Number one, are you reading his word? I promise you every time you open it, you're hearing from the Lord. Don't make this more difficult than it needs to be. Question number two, if he actually had something to say to you, are you quiet enough to hear it? Scripture tells us that he speaks in a still, small, quiet voice. Oftentimes, the pace, the volume, the noise in our life is such that he could come in a roaring wind, in an earthquake, in a raging fire, and we would probably still miss it. Is there enough silence in your life to actually hear from him? 
Let me give you some tips for ways that you can do this. You, tons of ways you can build silence into your life. But work out without your headphones. You're going to go for a jog or you're going to go to the gym. Just leave the headphones at home. Well, I've got to squeeze in a podcast. No, you don't. I promise you, the person's probably not saying anything revolutionary. They're probably just saying it in a different way that 100 people have said it before them. There's nothing new under the sun. I can't work out without music. Yes, you can. You just don't like to. Learn to love silence. Drive in your car without the radio. You got to take a 30-minute drive to work every day? Just shut it off. You go through a busy season of life? Take a day of solitude. Work together with your spouse on this if you have children. You say, I just really need some time to retreat. Figure out a way to do that. Take five minutes in the morning and just start your day with silence. Before you pick up your phone, maybe it's before the kids are awake, maybe it's before you launch into whatever it is that your schedule has on tap for the day. Take five minutes and just let it be quiet. When we were at Potter's Inn out in Colorado, the first thing we did, we showed up the first night, they read through all of these passages that we went through to kind of show us this rhythm. And then they told us uh, after dinner, we were... No one was going to speak until breakfast the next day. They called it a great silence. Just let your voice rest. Just be quiet. Let your ears rest. Plan a great silence. You put the kids down. You and your spouse decide, you know what? Tuesday night, uh, next week, let's just, let's just have some silence. We'll put the kids down to sleep, and then we'll talk again in the morning. Some of you introverts are like, sign me up. Let's do that every Tuesday. <laughs> Some of you extroverts are like, what will I do with myself? Like, how will I survive? You will, I promise. And here's the thing. It's not that just because you got really quiet meant that you had these immediate breakthroughs where you were hearing the voice of the Lord in a way that you never have before. No, you were just enjoying silence. Jesus retreating to deserted places to pray. Jesus withdrawing from crowds. You're just stopping I'll close with this. Jesus purchased eternal rest for our souls on the cross. Eternal rest. But that doesn't mean we have to wait for eternity in order to experience rest. It's available to us now. That's a return to how we were created to live. Part of what the kingdom coming means is that we live in the way that God intended humanity to live. And part of that way is within this rhythm of rest. And so if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've received God's grace for your salvation, trust him enough to actually rest in him. He bought that for you. And for whatever reason, we resist it with all that we are. But in 2020, I want to invite you to settle into it, to stop fighting against it, to see what it does for your soul. And parents, I know you're sitting there thinking to yourself, there's no way to do this with children. Okay, pause. A few thousand years of Jewish individuals did this with children. So can you. You can invite your children into Sabbath. You can teach them to love it. In fact, I would go so far as to say there are few things more important you could do in modeling the goodness and the grace of who God is than teaching your kids to stop and actually enjoy it. Let them see you rest. Levels of anxiety and depression are through the roof for America's current middle school, high school aged kids. Teach them to stop. 
Show them how to rest. Give them that gift. When they grow up, they're probably either going to take the pace of your current life to its next extreme, which heaven forbid what that might look like, or they're going to grow up and they're going to rebel against it anyway. So give them the model of what it looks like to work really hard. Yes, absolutely, but to do so from a place of rest. To worship God in all of their circumstances, with all of who they are, to chase after the Lord very hard, to do great things for His kingdom. Teach them all of that, but teach them that they do that out of the energy and the excitement and the passion that comes from a soul that knows how to rest in the Lord. They need that gift from you. You say to yourself, what about the... What about all the activities and the, the sports games and our calendar? Nothing got onto your calendar that you didn't give permission to. Which means you can either say no in the future or you can start taking things off the calendar. You're in charge. You're not just being tossed about by the whims of our culture. You can parent your phone. <coughs> parent some rest for your kids. Teach them how to do that. To drink deeply of the Savior, and then to learn how to run and launch from that into a life that's lived fully for Him. What a gift you could give your children. What a beautiful gift. Let's worship together. Uh, let's, let's close in prayer together. God, I pray that you would teach us how to rest. God, teach us how to just quit. Quit the rush, quit the hurry, quit the frantic pace that often characterizes our lives, Lord, and just learn how to rest in you. To be comfortable in stillness and silence before you, to learn how to cherish a day set aside for worshiping you and enjoying you supremely, Lord, and then to learn how to carry that forward with us every day. God, show us, illuminate for us where in our schedules we can create time for slowness, how we can, that there is a way to build Sabbath into our lives and to honor you by doing that, to display our trust in you by doing that, to be obedient to you by doing that. God, I pray supremely that your spirit in 2020 would teach us as a church how to just rest in you, how to love you deeply in that rest and how to allow that rest to propel us forward into lives that are characterized by a passion for you, by a desire to see your kingdom expand, God, by a desire to work really hard, but to do so from a place that's fully rested with souls that are fully rested in you. God, would you teach us that this year? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.